right. Welcome to Church Warden. Oh, my goodness. All right, there's two people over here. All of you guys, I got a free McDonald's coupon for those people who cheered. I'm just joking. I'm just kidding. Wouldn't that be cool, though? You know, if you respond to the pastor, we're handing him McDonald's coupons, or I'm just joking. It's all good. I'm so glad you're here. Are you glad to be here? Amen. I'm so glad to be in church this morning. I'm so excited to get into the Word today. Uh, God is so good. Uh, I do have some um, difficult news to pass on to you before we do get into the Word. A longtime member, uh, Mrs. Gertrude Doberstein, uh, has passed away. And uh, many of you have probably heard that on, it happened on October the 24th. Uh, we didn't announce it last week. We kind of found it at the end of the week, and I apologize for that. Uh, you deserve to have known immediately. Uh, but we were waiting to hear uh, the funeral arrangements. And due to the fact that her daughter, Gabby, is still uh, currently in the hospital, they're waiting for her to her health to improve before they make the final arrangements. So we will let you know. Uh, when those arrangements do come about, and we'll do that likely through email, and we'll let you know on Sunday mornings and everything as well. But uh, let's just take a moment and just, just pray for their family. Amen? Amen. I'm sure many of you today who uh, knew Gertrude quite well will include you in the prayers as well. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Father, we thank you for those, Lord, who know you and pass on. Lord, the thing we can rejoice about today is that you have taken one of your own. And I uh, thank you for her faith and her understanding of who you are. And I thank you for the promise of first fruits, Lord. And you were the first to die and, and be resurrected from the grave, Lord Jesus, the first fruits of what we expect in our future, Lord Jesus. And we celebrate that today. So, Father, we, we thank you for the testimony of her life, and I just pray for her family that you would minister to them. I pray for Gabby right now, Lord, that you would administer healing to her body. Lord Jesus, that you would touch her as she's dealing with sickness and grief at the same time. And so, Lord, be with them, be with their family. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. God bless family. And uh, if you're hurting with that news today, I just, yeah, just... Just invite you to just lean on the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Amen? The great comforter. We're looking in the Bible today. We're going to be going through Hebrews 8 and 9. Last week we talked about a better priest. And really, I mean, you can almost just press the continuation button a little bit and just pick it up today as we look at better covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 2 says this. It says, now the main point of what we are saying is this. So in other words, when you get to chapter 8, He's saying that everything I've said in the first seven chapters, everything I've said in the first half of this letter, he said, this is what it's all about right here. I love these phrases in Scripture that give you indication. Anytime you see the word therefore, or you see a phrase like this, you know that what has come before is about to be explained. And he says, now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest, amen, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in a sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Pray that you would open your, our hearts to receive it today, that we would be challenged and encouraged by your word today, Lord Jesus. 
Father, I, I, I love the truth of your word, and I pray that it would speak to our hearts today by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, give me clarity of thought and speech, and guide me by your Holy Spirit and the anointing you've placed on my life to do this, Lord Jesus. We love you, we honor you, in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Oh, that was a better amen. I'm getting you, you're coming around, it's good. We need Jesus as our great high priest. I hope after last week you left feeling that. We need him who mediates a new and a better covenant. Amen? And I want to take some time this morning and just talk a little bit about the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, I'm not just going to go through all the details. I mean, if I could go through Exodus 25 to 30, I mean, we'd be here a long time going through the differences of the tabernacle in the Old Covenant versus what we understand today. But I want to talk, tackle the Old Covenant uh, versus the New Covenant in kind of um, an opposites kind of way. And the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that the Old Covenant was a shadow of the real thing. The Old Tabernacle and the Old Covenant was a shadow of the real thing. Now, I know how you understand how, how shadows work. But when, you, when you're standing on, a, on one side of a building and you see a shadow coming around, we have no idea how big that person is, really. Depending on what angle the light is hitting that person, they could be a long stretch. You know, we've seen in the movie where people start running because they see the big figure that's coming around the corner, and all of a sudden you see this little kind of dog or a cat or something that's casting this massive shadow, right? The shadow is tricky. It deceives you. It, it, it gives you an idea of what's coming, but doesn't give you the whole picture of what's coming. But it does tell you, and it's important to understand, that it's coming. And we need to understand, in order to have a shadow, you need light to cast that shadow. And the light is coming. And we need to understand that the new covenant kind of represents that light. But the old covenant was a shadow. The old tabernacle was a shadow of the real thing. If we look at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 5 to 6, it says they serve, talking about the priests of the Old Covenant, it says they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So in other words, be detailed about this because I'm giving you a description of what's in heaven. I think that's pretty cool. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, the priests of the old covenant, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. God gave Moses exacting details in Exodus 25 and 30 and other places in the Torah for the tabernacle and how it was to be constructed replicating the heavenly original. Then we move down to chapter 9 to verse 11. It says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. The new covenant was better than the old. It fulfilled the old, rendering it obsolete, it says in another place in Hebrews, because it was mediated by a better priest and entered, who entered a better tabernacle. Amen? Stay with me now. We're going to get somewhere with all this. I know there's a bit of details that we're working through, but 
Chapter 9, verses 23, it says, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. This is why everything had to be purified that was on earth. Everything had to be purified. It was a copy of the purified things that are in heaven. There, there had to be sacrifices for the priest as well as for the people. Uh, all the instruments of the tabernacle had to be purified. Everything had to be purified. There had to be structure in place to deal with sin. There had to be a structured A plus B equals C way to deal with sin. The old covenant was necessary to provide a way for humankind to commune with God. The new covenant exposed the futility of man's efforts to deal with our sin by ourselves. The author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 34 to show the Jewish Christians as well as us today that we needed more than a shadow. We needed the real thing. We needed more than a copy of what is in heaven. We needed the real thing. We need the real thing. The old covenant was a shadow of a better covenant to come, and the new covenant was not written on stone tablets like the old, but it was written on the mind and hearts of every believer. So let's just read Jeremiah 31 and 31 to 34 here. It's a very important passage in the middle of, of, of this passage in Hebrews in chapter 8. begins at verse 7 to 13. The, the author quotes this passage from the Old Testament. Reminding us again that the gospel is all through the Old Testament. Amen? The story of Jesus is all through the Old Testament. The story of Jesus is a biblical one. It is not a New Testament one. We need to understand that. Since Genesis 3, 15, where it says that the serpent is going to be crushed and bite the heel. We, that's the first prophecy. You can go back and read it of Jesus. From the day, from that moment on, the Old Testament speaks of a better priest, speaks of a better covenant. Beginning at chapter 8, verses 7 to 13, it says, For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is almost a thousand years before Jesus set foot on the earth. The Bible is amazing. 700 plus years at least. It will not be like the covenant made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord. And listen to this. He says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor to say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. It's reconfirmed, it's confirmed as well in Psalm 40, verses 68, where it says this, is a sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. 
Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. The laws will be in our minds, written on our hearts. The psalmist says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears have opened. It's amazing. In other words, there were always strict regulations, but it was always about the desire of a person's heart from day one. It was always about our acknowledgement of Him. It was always about making a conscious and thoughtful choice to honor Him. It was displayed with Cain and Abel. It wasn't that Cain didn't check the box. Cain brought a sacrifice. In his mind, it was he did what he had to do, and this is where, where his frustration comes from. But Abel's choice to bring the best of his flock showed that he brought the first and the best, and it reflected his love and understanding of who God was. Cain was checking a box. Our faith cannot be about just checking boxes. They wanted to make They wanted to take the mind and the heart and their senses out of it. Cain wanted to take his mind, his heart, and his senses out of it. He didn't want to think about what he was doing. And we can get caught doing the same thing. The old law demanded much from from a structural A plus B equals C standpoint, but it was never meant to be just an equation. It was always meant to be a mind and a heart decision. But we love the A plus P equals C pattern, don't we? (laughs) I don't know about you, but I love someone telling me to do something and they give me direct. If somebody told me to go in the backyard and build a deck, I'd be like, huh, come again? (laughs) You know what I mean? Are you going to help me? Are you going to stick around here and teach me? And I'm I'm a great teacher following and learning. If I learn along with somebody, it's going to stick with me much longer. And that's a great... A great understanding of how discipleship is meant to happen as well, too, right? We're meant to live life together. We love the A plus B equals C pattern. It keeps things in our control. And what are we really trying to control? We're trying to control our feelings of guilt. And we're trying to control our feelings of shame. We're trying to control our sin. The major difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that the Old said, here is a path and a process you can take to cover your sin. The problem was the people became numb to the process and only thought about the what and not the why and took the thoughtfulness, the meaning, out of the approach. Sin brought guilt and it brought shame. The old covenant was inadequate in dealing with it, in dealing with shame and guilt, because the sacrifices were not sufficient. They needed a better sacrifice. They needed a better leader. They needed a better high priest and a mediator. They needed a new covenant of grace and mercy and would be, that would be sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Boy, I thought I'd get one amen there. Oh, man. You're going to discourage the preacher this morning if you don't speak up. This is truth. In comparing the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, we cannot conclude without talking about guilt and shame versus grace and a clear conscience. And this is... (laughs) 
All right, okay. I appreciate you. Guilt and shame versus grace and a clear conscience. I brought that on myself. Chapter 9, verses 9. Come back to me now. This is, the, this is the nuts and bolts here. This is what I want you to take this morning, okay? This is an illustration for the present time, it says in chapter 9, verses 9, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Chapter 9, verses go down to 12 and 14, it says, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. There is no other faith in the world where the person who is worshipped, the God who is worshipped in the faith, has laid down their life. It is his blood. It is his, he is both the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest and the mediator of the perfect covenant. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctified them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? What does our conscience need cleaning from? Sin. It needs cleaning from the results of sin in our life. When sin entered the world, the byproducts were guilt and shame. Shame in particular. And it is important to make distinction here. And I want to look at guilt versus shame. And I used uh, an academic journal from the Creative Commons uh, written by a person that I'm going to try to pronounce her name because I want to give them credit, but it's Slawiner Skredska. <laughs> and it's called Between Clinical and Biblical Conceptions of Guilt and Shame. And uh, I just want to share a little bit about the truth about shame and guilt and what it can do in your life this morning before we close. Let's just compare the two this morning. Shame is widely considered an unhealthy moral emotion. Guilt is seen as an adaptive response to one's failures. Shame can hinder one's development, but guilt can be a beneficial emotion on times. And why is this? Because shame deals with identity. It deals with self. It attacks a person's understanding of who they are. Guilt is generally about a specific behavior, and feelings of guilt often leads to to reparations of that behavior. Guilt is useful on times in steering us away from making behavior uh, a habit. We all do things from time to time that we feel guilt over and have to apologize for, but where guilt reminds us that we did something bad and shouldn't do that again, shame tells us that we are inherently bad, that we are a bad person, that we were broken. And that there is no salvation from that. The old covenant had no way to deal with shame. Shame makes us feel like we have a debt that is insurmountable. And under the law, we did. We would try to pay the creditor. As it were. But we'd fail again and again. And we couldn't keep up with the interest. We needed a benefactor. 
And we need to understand this morning that if we're talking about a debtor, we only had one debt to pay. And it's only to one person. And here's the great thing about it. And this is why he is a better leader, first of all. He's a better mediator. He's a better uh, priest. He's a better everything. He's better in every way. Jesus is better in every way because he is the one who settled the debt for you. He is the only one who can demand the debt from you. But he says, I got you. I am going to settle the debt for you. So that shame no longer needs to be a part of your life. And here's the trick with the enemy. The problem with shame is that the enemy comes and uses it to make us believe that he is the creditor. Do you understand what I'm saying here? He makes, tries to make us believe that he's the one that we need to pay. He wants to keep us in shame. He reminds us of the debts we have to pay and makes them feel huge and insurmountable. That person won't forgive you. You're unforgivable. That scene is too embarrassing for you to be honest, to be honest about. Keep that secret. Every time you keep your sins bottled up and you hide them, you're paying the wrong creditor. No one cares about your sickness, anxiety, or hurts. This is the lie he tells you. He tells you that you'll never get a job. You're unemployable. He says it as if it's a matter of fact about you. It is who you are. The reason you can't do any of these things because of who you are. It's not like it's something you can fix. And he wants you to keep paying the wrong creditor. He wants you to keep believing these things. Every time we believe, believe a lie, we pray the wrong creditor. Every time we, we, we follow the shadow, we pay the wrong creditor. Every time someone comes and, and we struggle to, to forgive and we say, no, I'm not going to forgive, and we hold a grudge, we're paying the wrong creditor. And the creditor that we owe everything to has already paid the debt. Where guilt or conviction is the Christian way of saying it, I guess can be used to help us see the error of our ways. Shame is what the enemy uses to make us believe we are not savable, we are not redeemable, that the debt is too large. And if he can get us to believe that we need to pay someone other than the Father, that's all he wants. And he certainly doesn't want you to know that you have a divine benefactor who has paid your debt with his own blood. The new covenant tells us our debt is already paid. Hallelujah. Only he who created you can determine who you are. Shame was meant to be left at the foot of the cross. Repentance and confession frees the heart from the lies of the enemy and reminds us that the enemy is not our creditor and the one who keeps our account has wiped it clear. We are free. You are free. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, you are free from shame, from guilt, from sin, from the destructive power of sin, from any influence of the enemy. You have the power of the Holy Spirit who came and sealed this better covenant in your heart. Oh, I love the Holy Spirit. 
I love the fact that he seals the truth in my heart. And when I waver and I think, oh, and I start following something else, I go to the Holy Spirit and says, come remind me of who he is. Speak to my heart. Remind yourself today that even in this moment right now, you are in the heavenly tabernacle of God. Jesus intercedes for you in the heavenly tabernacle of God. He went to a better tabernacle as a better priest with a better offering to provide you with a better covenant. And he asked nothing from you but your yes. Christ is the great high priest, the divine benefactor, the debt eraser. He calls us to stop paying the wrong creditor. Come to the one who has record of your account and be reminded that your ledger has been wiped clean. God showers his grace upon us through his love and the gifts of the Spirit. But Lamentations tells us this, that his mercies are new every morning. And we need to make a distinction in our mind about the difference between grace and mercy. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. It's a gift that just comes out of nowhere. And God pours out his gifts. We're reminded in Ephesians chapter 4 that, that his grace is a portion to each one of us. And we are, all have gifts by the power of grace, you know, as gifts in our life. Charis is the Greek word. But mercy is the staying power that keeps his judgment away. It is looking at us and realizing that we all deserve punishment. We all deserve to, be die, to die on the cross for our own sins. But he says, no, I'll step in your place. When you deserve to be punished, only God can say, no, I got this. And the enemy comes back and tries to make you believe that you haven't because it's only you that can do, that can pay for your sin. But it's not. Jesus has paid for your sin. And even when I look at my kids and sometimes I look at them and they look at me and they know the discipline is coming. You all know the look on I can picture my dad's face right now. When I saw that face, I was like, oh boy. But my dad would sometimes would look at me and he'd say, it's okay. We're going to we're going to walk past this one this time. You know what you did wrong, right? Like, yep. And he, there's no extra discipline. He says, we're going, to, we're going to give you a pass on this one. Those are the moments that stick with you as a kid. Mercy changes people. Repent. Uh, Romans chapter 2, I believe it says that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. It is our mercy. Mercy is the change agent that changes the world, man. I'm telling you, when you are kind to someone who doesn't deserve it, does our world not need a dose of this? When you're kind to someone, it's easy to be kind to someone who deserves it. But when you give unmerited favor, you give grace to someone who doesn't deserve it, you give mercy, you give compassion to someone who doesn't deserve it, it changes people because it's different because it's new covenant stuff lamentations 3 22 to 26 let it be a reminder this morning because of the lord's great love we are not consumed for his compassions his mercies never fail and they are new every morning great is thy faithfulness amen i say to myself the lord is my portion therefore i will wait for him this is the gospel. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. 
whose heart and mind are centered on him, right? I'm adding a little bit there, but it's, it's implicit to the one who seeks him, the one whose mind and heart is after him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Last night I, I spoke to a spiritual son of mine. I feel hard saying that because he's like 33 now. It makes me feel very old. But I've walked with this kid since he was 12. And he, he called me last night and he, uh, I told him he was looking for advice from me, but he encouraged me, man. He built me up in the most holy faith. Go read that passage in Jude, will you? It says, build each other up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. And sometimes you've got to go and snatch others from the fire. There's an there's a urgency that's in that passage that it's just amazing that I think all believers need to grasp onto. But I had this conversation with this young man who had been my family. He is my son. Uh, we've spiritually adopted him. And he called me last night and he said, Pete, and he's, he's had a tough, I'm not going to get into the details of his life. That's his testimony to tell. But he's had a tough go. And I've always seen the call of God in his life. And you know how hard it is as a parent to see the call. You see what they're supposed to do, but you know they've got to figure it out themselves. It's hard. I've had to make some hard decisions with this young man. But the Holy Spirit was involved in his life. And he called me last night after this, this uh, fall beginning his journey at Bible college and taking his first course. God is good, man. And I've said this multiple times, but only the one who creates can redeem, right? Only the one who creates can give you your identity. Well, this young man, I believe, has found his identity in Jesus Christ. And he called me last night. He says, Pete, he says, I've prayed and asked God, you know, many times. He says, I've never. He says, I've been a Christian. You know, I've been trying to do this much of my life, he says, but... God gave me a vision the other night, and I don't get it. I don't understand it, he says, because I feel like I'm free from I don't feel like I'm holding on to anything. He says, I feel like I'm free from my past. I'm free from, and he used these words, guilt and shame. And I realize how amazing the Holy Spirit is, because this week I've dug into these words so deeply and asked God, you know, what's going on with these words in my life? And then I, my own spiritual son calls me and reminds me that, yeah, okay, I don't only want you to, to share this with the congregation this week, but I've been preparing you for this conversation with this young man as well. God is good, man. The Holy Spirit knows what's up. And he told me his, his, his vision, and I'm telling you now with his permission. He had this vision where he was in a prison cell, sitting on the floor in a prison cell. He says, Pete, I don't get it. He says, I'm sitting in the prison cell. He says, I'm looking down. The, the chains are still on my arms, he said, but they're broken. And I'm like, well, thank God. You know, the chains are broken. He says, the door is wide open. He says, but I'm not going through it in the vision. He says, it's as clear as anything. He said, he said it's this weird thing. He says, I can consciously think about everything else going on. He said, but God is forcing me to think directly about this thing. He said, I know it was a vision. And he says, I don't understand what's going on. And God by his Holy Spirit is flooding this back in my mind about guilt and shame. And when I tell you he's had a tough past, I've been at his hospital bed after crashing a car doing 180 kilometers an hour, and God spared him. Drove from up north five hours and sat next to his bed. 
God's got a plan for this young man, I'm telling you. And God spoke into my heart, and I told him, I said, I think this has to do with shame. He says, but I, I feel free. I feel free. You know, I don't, I don't feel bound by this anymore. I don't feel like I'm trapped by this anymore. And then God said, no, no, take it a little bit farther. And he said, no. I said, no. I said, and I'm telling you, this stuff comes to you. And in the moment, this is when Jesus said, you know, be prepared in that season. And he says that, you know, when you're going to speak, you know, I'll give you the words to speak. He's talking about it in discipleship and, and in evangelism. He's talking about it in those moments where you need the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit showed up last night. And I said, no. I said, you don't have shame for yourself anymore. You, God has cleared your shame, but your shame is what you believe about what other people believe about you. And then we both cried together for a little bit. You can't imagine that, can you? <laughs> and he said, oh my goodness, he said, that's it. And I said, you've you're been going to a church for a year now, and he's struggling, you know, getting to know people and the stuff he says. And I said, and you look at these people, and you believe lies that they know what you've been through, and you believe that they're judging you. They don't even know who you are. And I told him, I said, you're paying the wrong creditor. I said, you got to understand. I said that the enemy wants you to look at this person. And I'm telling you, as a pastor, I feel this too. I feel this every time my wife would tell you, and, and, and Pastor Connie and I joke about this, is that you get, you know, post-sermon depression because you pick yourself apart, you know, was that good enough? Or, you know, I, I messed that up and stuff. And, and we can believe lies. And trust me, I know I'm not, I'm not perfect at everything. I understand, and I'm working at getting better at stuff all the time. But the enemy can make you believe that good people believe bad things about you. And you have no idea what they believe. I can look at you and think that you think that I'm a, a dumb noof. I know that we can laugh about that, but I've been called that. I had one man tell me one time, he says, you're not a Newfoundlander. He says, you're too smart to be a Newfoundlander. And I was, it hurt, man. I know we do a lot of new feet jokes, but man, I tell you, sometimes the things people say hurt. I looked at them and I said, the Newfoundlanders I know are doctors, teachers, and ministers. You don't know me. The enemy wants you to believe that everybody in here knows all your deeds. He wants you to believe that everybody in here knows all, the, all your sins. And that every time they look at you, they're like, oh, I can't believe he's doing that. It really, you know, that guy up there speaking right now, when he was in grade 9, he only got 66% on his speech. How can he possibly be doing this? I know, it's so silly. That's such a silly thing, but I've been in the middle of my sermon before, and the enemy took me back to my failings and my broken, all the times I could have been learning from my dad to, about how to preach and what to do. He takes me back to all these moments, and he says, you could be so much better at this by now. And he tries to make you believe you're something you're not. And I got to speak into my son's life last night, my spiritual son's life, and say, your identity can only be determined by the one who created you, and you are only redeemed by the one who created you. And that is the only person who knows you. That is the only person who can speak about who you are. And anybody who judges you, that just tells you that that's not someone you need in your company. Shame is a killer. 
And some of you may need to be freed from it this morning. The lies you believe about yourself that are lies that the enemy has come in and tried to make you believe and you end up believing them and you pay the wrong creditor. When the one who has your account in hand looks at your sins as washed white as snow, clean with the crimson blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. If that's not a reason to gather around the table of the Lord this morning, to commune together, you know what we celebrate when we gather around the table of the Lord together? We celebrate this communion, this family. We celebrate the new identity. The Bible tells us multiple times that we are a new creation. We used to sing these old songs, I'm a new creation, I'm a brand new band. All things have passed away. I've been born again. I'm more than a conqueror. Right? That's who I am. I'm a new creation. I am a brand new man. We sing these old songs and we sing the truth in our life and sometimes we sing things and like my wife said, you know, we go through the motions. But this morning, be reminded of who you are in Jesus Christ. If you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, your slate is clean. If you're believing lies about yourself, you're paying the wrong creditor. Remind yourself who stood in the gap for you this morning. We're going to gather around the table of the Lord this morning. And we're going to partake of these emblems together. Let me just remind you what Lamentation says before we... We're just going to sing... This next song, and we're going to prepare our hearts to receive from the Lord. The, the word tells us, it says, not to come before the, the table in any, any unworthy matter. If there's any unforgiveness and things in your heart that you need to deal with. I always believe in giving people just time to do that. I try to, when I know it's communion, I try to start doing this. Try to make it a daily confession of my life to be repentant and confess every day of my life, but... I try to, I, I talk to God before I come before this table and I say, Jesus, I said, is there anything, am I harboring anything? Is there anybody I need to talk to? Something I need to deal with today? So I just want you to just bow your head before God. Let the Holy Spirit, the one who sealed the new covenant in your heart, let him come and speak to you and maybe remind you that, yeah, Maybe after the service today, you need to deal with something. You need to take care of something. But don't come before the table without forgiveness in your heart this morning. Just say a prayer before God and say, God, I know what you paid for my debt. You paid my debt. You've forgiven me. Help me to walk in that freedom this morning. So just, it's good to take some time and think. Just listen to this passage in Lamentations one more time. Let it resonate in your heart as we sing this great old hymn together. Lamentations 3, 22 to 26. It says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassion never fails. His mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Not the enemy, not the lies. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him. 
to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Let's just sing. Let's hold him together and prepare our hearts to receive the emblems of the Lord together.